announcements completed, we will pray and get into the Word. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn with me to uh, John chapter 12 as we uh, begin our study today. So Lord, we thank you so much uh, for this church. We thank you for the, the many hands, the many feet, Lord, the, the people who serve and, and make things happen, the worship team, the sound team, our security, ushers, greeters, every ministry that takes place here is a blessing, Lord, to the, this church, to ourselves, and also to the community around us. We just thank you so much for the opportunity. We pray that as we get into your word today, Lord, that you would uh, just speak through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would be encouraged and challenged in the ways that you see fit. And Lord, that, that nothing of myself would come forward, Lord, but that we would hear your words, that we would uh, just be encouraged by the truth of the gospel. So we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, we're in John chapter 12. This is Palm Sunday. And uh, what an exciting day it is. I mean, this whole week is filled with uh, so many exciting uh, happenings, and some of them tragic, yes, but also fulfillments of, of Scripture that uh, give us a greater hope uh, it, through Jesus and, and what he's about to suffer, what he's about to go through, and yet he would be uh, raised again, and we celebrate that this coming Easter Sunday. But today we, we're discussing Palm Sunday, this happening the week before Easter. And we'll read in, in uh, verse 12, and we'll, we'll look at verse 12 through 16, and we'll get into this. So verse 12 says, The next day, a great multitude had come to the feast. When they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. And they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on the donkey's colt. His disciples, disciples did not understand these things at that first or at that time. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him. The things that had happened to him, the things that were done to him. The significance of this day just as it was in Jesus's day, can be lost on a great many people. We celebrate Palm Sunday and we call it the triumphant entry when Jesus comes into the city there in Jerusalem right before Passover, right before he would suffer and die for our sins. But when we look at these things, we can sometimes misunderstand them as the crowds did in that day. We're going to take a part and look at each item that's mentioned here. We're going to look at the feast. We're going to look at the prophetic words that are being fulfilled. We're going to look at the word Hosanna, palm branches, and even the donkey. What are the significance uh, of these things? So as we look at the first thing that's mentioned here, we look at the feast. The feast was Passover. And so in this, Jesus is coming into the city as two are, are really almost millions of people pressing into the city at this time for the feast of Passover, bringing with them their sacrificial lambs. They wanted them to be inspected and selected before the great feast of Passover. They had requirements of having this lamb that was of a certain age, that was uh, without spot or blemish, that was healthy, that they would come and, and inspect these lambs. And so as Passover is beginning, we see God's plan for salvation being enacted on this day. Because as these people are bringing in their lambs, their sacrificial lambs, God would present his sacrificial lamb perfect, spotless, without blemish, not only to cover our sins, 
but to erase them, to wipe them away, to cleanse us of our sins. And so we have this kind of dualism happening right now where there's the physical, which the crowd sees, the people gathering together and the excitement of, of Jesus coming in. And yet God looking at it and going, here is my spotless lamb. And with that, we know that he would also be inspected that the, the Jews and the Pharisees, that they would actually bring him forward and question him and try to find fault with him, but that they would find no fault. We also have the prophetic things that are taking place right now. We have the prophecy of Daniel. Now, Daniel had prophesied that the Messiah would come on the very day that Jesus was entering Jerusalem, on the 10th day of Nisan. We know this from Daniel chapter 9 verse 25. We'll take a look at it. It says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. The command to rebuild Israel was given on March 14th in 445 BC by Artaxerxes. This would be 483 years or 69 units of seven after the command was given on April 6th, AD 32. So this is Jesus coming in April 6th, AD 32, 483 years after this command was given. If anyone took the time to look at this command, they could understand on this day, Artaxerxes gave this command and the Jews were able to go back into Israel. They were able to go back and rebuild the walls. And even as it said, in troublesome times, they didn't get to go back necessarily in peace. Though they had the permission from Artaxerxes to go, they still had enemies that came against them. And so they were having some people stand guard and they were working in one hand and keeping a sword in the other because there were still enemies trying to come against this fulfillment here. And so on this day, comes in the Messiah. So this is God presenting his perfect and spotless lamb, as well as revealing on this day, the Messiah, the prince, the savior that the nation of Israel had been waiting for. But what's being cried out in the streets is Hosanna. Hosanna means save now. So what you hear people shouting when you say Hosanna, when we sing Hosanna in the highest, we're saying save us now. What expectations we put on that phrase are, are critical. The people in this day put the expectation of deliverance. They wanted a political Messiah. Jesus had come for a different reason. How do we know that they were anticipating a political Messiah? Another aspect we can look at were the palm branches. While they were crying out, save now, they were also lifting up the palm branches. It's called Palm Sunday for a reason. Palm branches became a symbol of Jewish nationalism since the time of the Maccabees. When Israel overthrew the tyrant Antichius Epiphanes, who slaughtered a pig in the temple and made the priests drink its blood. This was a, a massive blasphemy. This person was a, a horrid ruler and oppressive over the Jewish people. And so some of the Jewish people, the Maccabees, uh, specifically Judah Maccabee and his brothers, they, with the people, overthrew this ruler. And when they overthrew this ruler, and when the, the Jews took back 
their national pride, their freedom, people spontaneously began to pick up palm branches and cut them off of trees and they were waving them and they were celebrating this, the day of their independence. And so what we see here is as the people see Jesus coming in, they begin to cry out, save now, Hosanna, waving palm branches, signifying what deliverance they were expecting. And yet we see Jesus comes in, not on a white horse, not at the head of an army, but lowly on a donkey. The importance there is found in Zechariah 9.9, where we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I love how that prophecy there in, in Zechariah 9.9, it just makes it redundant. Like, guys, not a white horse, a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. He just continues to, to just really make sure we understand this. Here is the king. Here is the Messiah. Here is the coming prince having salvation. He is just, and he's all of the things that you would want, but he's also coming in lowly in humility, riding on this donkey. So we can begin to see the difference between God's plan and the expectations of the people. God's plan is to send his son, the spotless lamb, the savior of the world, coming in lowly so that he would suffer and die for our sake, for the forgiveness of our sins. The anticipation and the expectation of the people was save us from this Roman oppression. Save us from our political, uh, you know, I don't know what to say there. I lost my train of thought. Save us from the political oppression that we're experiencing. Save us, Jesus. The mis misunderstanding doesn't just include the people. It's not just the masses that are misunderstanding. I love the honesty of John here as he begins to say that they themselves didn't even understand these things at first. That the disciples still had this misconception and the wrong idea even at this point. But that when Jesus was glorified, then they understood these things. We see so much confusion concerning Jesus in this day, and we see that same confusion concerning Jesus in our day. Even though we have the scriptures to explain these things to us, and we have all the prophecies, we have the New Testament more than what they had then, we have great understanding. But most of the time, the confusion really comes in when our expectations are placed on God. When we expect God to be what we want him to be, almost as though we invented him. But what we need to do is to recognize the sovereignty of God, to recognize that he is who he is, that he is the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. He is perfect in all of his ways, and he's not going to meet your expectations the way that you want him to. He has a perfect plan. His ways are high above our ways, his thoughts high above our thoughts. Verse 17, we see, therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, many people also met him because they had heard that he had done this sign. 
The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world is going after him. At this time, there are many people who have begun to follow Jesus because of his miraculous power, because of the wonderful works that he had done. He had just raised Lazarus from the grave, and it wasn't something done in private. It was something done where even the the Pharisees were there standing witness, and they couldn't deny the power that they had seen. They couldn't deny what, what had happened in that place. And many of the Pharisees began to question, is this truly the Messiah? And so there's this frustration that we see among the Pharisees because they're going, you've done nothing. All of our attempts to stop him, all of our attempts to defame him have done nothing. Here is the undeniable power of the Messiah being proven out before us. But in this, even though Jesus proved who he was, the expectations of people still didn't line up with God's will and God's word. We can remember that Jesus had asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? The last time I was able to teach in here, that's actually the thing, the very thing I taught on was who do we say that Jesus is? And first we looked at who do men say that Jesus is? And so we saw some of the answers. Some of the answers were John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or another one of the prophets. And in many ways, people looked at John the Baptist as this herald of national repentance. They looked at him as someone who would stand up to a corrupt government, that whether Herod the king was you know, the king or not, or whether the Pharisees were religious rulers or not, that he would still tell each of them, what you're doing is wrong, you need to repent. And many people look to Jesus even today for that straighten out Washington, straighten out the crooked. Do these things, Lord. This is the Messiah. Or Elijah, the prophet of power, right? Someone that would come and show us miracles and wonders and all the wonderful power of God. And Jesus, he did many wonders and many things, but he didn't just come to show us the power of God. And unfortunately today, there's a movement within the church that they want to drum up excitement falsely and they want to claim that these wonderful things are happening. And and yes, God does the miraculous. Yes, God does save us. God does miracles and wonders and signs, but they they overemphasize these things to the point where they begin to fake them and they lie. And it's, it's just so sad because they're still looking for this prophet of power misinterpreting and misunderstanding what Jesus came to do. Or Jeremiah, another one of the prophets, they seek for themselves somebody who would speak the words of God, a great orator, somebody who could explain the wonders of the the scriptures and, and the existence of life. Yet the correct answer was, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He wasn't John the Baptist. He wasn't Elijah. He wasn't Jeremiah or another prophet, so to speak. He was the prophet, the coming one, the Messiah, the son of the living God, not just another man, not our own personal Messiah, one of our own creation from our expectations, but the one God had promised. Today, we see people making a a political Uh, messiah out of people or looking for the miraculous working of a genie or a lamp grant me this lord oh if i could only have this if i could only have that 
or Lord, fix our country because you see what's happening and, and you know, these things need to happen. And so we need to do these things. Or we look to teachers and we want to know, oh, okay, teacher, teach me wonderful things so that I could have greater understanding. But that wasn't the need of the people, nor is it today. Our greatest need in the day of Jesus as it is today was not political revolution. It was not to see signs and wonders and watch people be healed. It was not to hear great orators, people who could speak wonderful truths. It was the salvation of our souls. Think for a moment. I mean, play this out in your head. If it had played out to the people's expectations. So Jesus is made king. They overthrow the Roman government right? There's peace in Jerusalem. But not only that, peace begins to reign in all the world, and we see these wonderful things happening. And Jesus comes and does all of those things. Would that solve their problem? They would still be under the law. They would still have to fulfill all of the things of the sacrificial system. They would still be in need of the salvation that Jesus came to offer. God's plans are so much greater and so much higher than ours. And he doesn't want to just give you good. He wants to give you his best. He knew what we needed was salvation, forgiveness, the cleansing of our sins. If he had come and fulfilled the desires and the expectations of the people, they would still be dead in their sins. And the same is true for us today. Don't put your expectations on God. Look to his word. Look to his promises. Those things you can expect. Those things you can anticipate because he promised them. Verse 20 says, Now there were certain Greeks among them who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew told Philip, or, or Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. But Jesus answering them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So here we have these Greeks coming to Jesus, these non-Jewish people, Gentiles, right? And they're coming during the feast of Passover to worship. Now, they could have simply been coming because they had heard about the miraculous wonders of Jesus, uh, and they just wanted to understand. They were curious. Or it could have been that they were actual converts to Judaism and that they came to worship during the Feast of Passover. But either way, here we see these people coming to seek out Jesus. And for the first time, we're starting to see Jesus say something a little different, which is the hour has come. We think over and over again that Jesus continued to tell them, it's not my time. The time was not right. I'm not yet ready. My hour has not yet come. But this was the time. This was the moment. This was the signal. These people coming to seek Jesus began to signify the hour that the Son of Man should be glorified, that he would be lifted up for all to see. 
The fact that his hour had not yet come shows us how many times he was delivered from violence before. How many times the Pharisees sought to kill him and, and how many times the crowds were trying to grab him and he just disappeared. Jesus was really good at disappearing acts. It's, it's kind of amazing to watch that he would say these things and then people would try to lay hold of him, whether to make him king or to try and kill him, to stop him from what he was saying. But now he's saying the hour has come. And Jesus really doesn't respond to these Gentiles that come to see him. It's not really the response they were looking for, but, on the, but he explains that on the other side of the cross, they would see him. That the only real way that they could come to see Jesus was going to be through the cross. Humanity was about to receive new life in the Son of God. But Jesus had to be glorified first. He had to die first. Jesus didn't mean that he would be glorified in the eyes of men. That just happened. I mean, he's coming into the city. People are, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're worshiping him, and they're so excited. They're, they're lifting him up. But that wasn't the type of exaltation that Jesus was talking about. The type of exaltation was that he would be lifted up off of the earth. He was signifying to them the type of death that he would die. This was the glorification that we were waiting for. You could imagine in a disciples' brains, they're like, oh, I know this one, right? Like we were on the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw it. Light show turns on. Jesus is glowing. It's like wonderful. But that's not what Jesus was speaking of here. He begins to say, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, then it will not bear fruit, right? A seed that's never planted, that's never put into the earth, it's not going to bear fruit. It's not going to grow. But when it does, it'll grow and it'll produce what? Fruit. It'll produce more seeds. And then you can take those things and you can harvest them and you can begin to plant them again. And you have more crop growing and you can do that over and over again until literally you have a harvest, a full harvest. And this is what Jesus is accomplishing here. He's the first one that needs to go to the cross and die. He's the one that needs to fall first so that many more could join him in that same death. What do we mean by that? He's telling us that we're going to follow him. The Bible teaches us over and over again that our lives have ended when we came to the Lord. We didn't come to him because we just wanted him to make our lives better. We were dead people in need of life. And as we die to ourselves, we too become that grain that falls to the earth, that sprouts forth and then spreads. And we begin to see this. This is why the harvest is plentiful, right? We have many, many, many people all over the world who have accepted the salvation that Jesus offers. And then we can die to ourselves and we too can take the opportunity to share that good news with others, to explain to them the coming Messiah, the one who did come and yet will come again. He calls his disciples there. He says, follow me. By embracing the death of our worldly selves, we enter into life everlasting, free of the power of sin and the penalty of sin. If we say we serve Jesus, then this is our call. Follow him to the cross. Our call is to die to ourselves 
and to trust that he will give us new life. And he tells us that there's a promised reward. Not only that we're going to be freed from the power and the penalty of sin, but that we'll also get to be with him. He says, my servants, they'll be with me. There I am. They'll be with me. And that we'll be glorified, we'll be uh, lifted up by the Father, that we'll be honored by him, to be called sons, to be called daughters of the Most High, to be welcomed into this family. In verse 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. What And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose... I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven came saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. This first section, now my soul is troubled. Sometimes we forget the humanity of Jesus. Have you ever, you know, you're reading the Bible and you see Jesus doing the miraculous. Healing the blind, walking on water, turning water to wine, all of these wonderful things. And you think what? Well, yeah, it's Jesus, right? We just kind of accept it because why? He's Jesus. He's the promised one. He's the Messiah. He's God. But we we forget the fact that Jesus came and, and didn't just take on humanity as some kind of an outward covering, but that he became humanity. And in the weirdest way possible, he laid aside his deity and became a human still being 100% God, 100% man. And so as a man, he's troubled in this moment. You know, one of the the details that doesn't get talked about a whole lot on Palm Sunday as we begin to talk about the triumphant entry and we're so excited is a detail found in Luke that Jesus was weeping as he was coming in on this donkey. We need to remember in the garden as he's being prepared and he's praying before the Lord, the the blood coming forth from him as he's agonizing over what will happen and the prayer that he's praying, Lord, if there's any way, Father, if there's any way, let this cut pass for me. But then he goes, you know what? But not my will, yours be done. We have amongst us a high priest who understands us, not just theoretically, but that he lived the human life. He experienced the heartache and the pain. He watched people die. He wept over them, even though he knew the fullness of God's plan. And so too, we go through these difficulties in life. Yes, we accept Jesus. We, we accept the salvation. You know, we, we accept that he died for our sins. And yet sometimes we put our own expectations on God and we expect that, okay, but I became a Christian. Everything was supposed to be wonderful and great in my life. And I wasn't supposed to have any more difficulties. And there are these people that are teaching that I'm supposed to be prosperous financially because of it. And I'm supposed to never get sick. And where are all of these things? Because of the expectations men put on God. But you remember Jesus told us in this life, You will suffer persecution. You will be troubled. You will experience hardship or heartache and and hardship. But I will be with you. That's the promise. As Pastor Mike has been teaching us, 
He, he's talking about this book of Philippians and talking about Paul being there in prison. And he said something that, you know, Paul didn't see the bars. He saw the stars, right? That even in this situation where he's shackled to these uh, centurions, and even in this situation where he's put in this prison, even in the, in the hard times in his life, what does he say? He's like, this is a great opportunity. Great opportunity for what? For serving these people, for teaching them the truth of God's word, for explaining who Jesus is, what he came to do for them, to share the gospel with them. What a wonderful opportunity. We need to begin to look at the difficult seasons of our life as opportunities to die to ourselves so that God can be glorified. Cast off your expectations for the Savior to come in and swoop in. You should say, as Jesus did, yes, honestly, my soul is troubled. Yes, honestly, what I'm going through right now may be very difficult and seem completely desperate and seem like there's no hope, but what shall I say? Should I say, God, save me, take me out of this difficulty? Or should I submit myself to his will, recognizing his sovereignty and saying, for this purpose, I have come to this time. For this reason, God is having me go through this, that he would be glorified. That when I die to myself, when I'm not complaining and whining and expecting Jesus to, to just save me from all the hardship and make my life wonderful, but that I recognize through my hardship, he would be glorified. Through my hardship, somebody may come to know him or might be encouraged in their faith. Just as, as we're studying through uh, you know, the book and, and we're looking at Paul and, and his chains, and we take courage. We take courage because we go, wow, how could he be joyful in this moment? And he's like, this is my purpose. And then he says, he explains, he says, hey, yeah, it'd be great for the Lord to just save me now, to take me out, right? He's like, if I were just to die right now, awesome. I would be with Jesus. Free of all the pain and suffering and all of those things, I'd enter into eternity. But he says, but it's needful for you that I stay. In the same way, we need to stop looking at ourselves and going, you know, it's all about me. But maybe look around the people, your family, your friends, your coworkers, and say, it's needful for you that I'm here. That even in this difficult situation, perhaps I could be used by the Lord to minister to you. Now, here we have the, the father speaking from heaven, a voice coming from heaven, right? This is the third time this, that the father's voice comes from heaven audibly to the people. The first time we see this is at Jesus' baptism at the beginning of his ministry, where he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The second time was at his transfiguration, roughly in the middle of his ministry. When the disciples there see Jesus and, and he's glorified and there's Moses and the Lord, there's Elijah. And then their response is, let's build a tabernacle. One for you, one for you, one for you. Putting him on equal footing with Moses and Elijah. But the Lord comes forth and says, this is my son. Recognizing, hey, Moses and Elijah were great, but this is my son and correcting that. And the third time here, as Jesus is praying, what should I say? Save me from this hour, but no, for this purpose I've come. And he says, Father, glorify your name. And God opening up the Father saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it. And in verse 29, the people, when they hear this, they stood by and heard it. And they said, 
It had thundered. And others said, it's an angel that has spoken to him. And you just kind of have to laugh a little bit, right? Because there's always this misunderstanding that, that surrounds when the father speaks. They're like, was that thunder or was, was that an angel? And, and not really fully understanding it. But then Jesus, you know, being Jesus, he clarifies for us. He says, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying what death he would die. Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, vividly begin to describe for us the defeat of Satan at the cross. He says, you know, this is the, the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. And in that section in Colossians, we have a, a greater detail and explanation that says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way. He has nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. What do we mean? If Jesus didn't come to die, if Jesus didn't fulfill the law, we would still be held to that law. The handwriting requirements, which was contrary to our nature. The law was not meant for us for all time. The law was meant as a tutor to teach us something. And the Bible tells us that what it taught us and what we can see as we read the Old Testament, and even as Christians, as we live out our lives and try to hold ourselves to certain expectations, we fail, we fall short. They were never able to keep it perfectly then and will never be able to keep it perfectly now. It was contrary to our nature because it was perfect. Who could live out such perfection? One who had not experienced the fall. One who didn't have a sinful nature. And so in this, the handwritten requirement, which was contrary to us, was wiped out. It was taken out of the way and it was nailed to the cross. Christ fulfilled all of those things. Our greatest need. And here we have the defeat of the, the ruler of this world being cast out, being disarmed, being made a public spectacle, triumphing over the minute. I love the phrasing there because you think of Satan, this prideful one, this one who would boast that he is as great as God and would be higher and greater than the Lord. And yet through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, he was made a public spectacle of, that it was literally a public thing for all the people to see, for all the generations to come afterwards to understand that in that moment, he was defeated. The power that he held over us was cut down. He triumphed over them. This is why we call it the triumphant entry. Not because he came to meet the expectations of the people and to be a political savior, but because he came to be the savior of the world, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He met our greatest need. It says that 
If he be lifted up from the earth, that he would draw all to himself. Everyone, differing tribe, tongue, or nation, can now freely come to Jesus as the Spirit of God draws them to himself. This is the way that those earlier mentioned Gentiles who were wanting to come and to see Jesus would be able to know him. Through the cross, through his burial, through his resurrection, this is how they would see Jesus in light of the cross. And we need to today remember there's no moving past the cross or beyond it into some kind of a greater spirituality. It is the crux of our salvation. Everything hinges on it, on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verse 34, the people answered him as he's beginning to explain, this is how I'm going to die. They say, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And now you say, the son of man must be lifted up. Who is this son of man? Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Still, the people don't understand what's happening. Just before this, it's, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. And as Jesus explains the death that he would die and who he was, they begin to say, wait, hold on a second. We're expecting you to come and to stay forever. Our interpretation of scripture says, you're going to set up your kingdom. You're going to rule and reign forever. But to come to that conclusion, you would have to ignore scripture after scripture, prophecy after prophecy that taught that he would come, that he would suffer, that he would die. You would have to ignore, you know, Zechariah 9.9. You would have to ignore all of these other things in scripture because the people wanted something out of Jesus. And as he begins to describe what he's going to offer them, it's like, whoa, hold on a second. Who is this son of man? And what do you mean you're going to go away? They were not alone. The disciples had this misunderstanding going all the way back to who do you say that I am? They say, some say this person, some say that person. Then we have Simon answering. And he says, you're the Messiah. You're the savior. You're the coming one, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You got it right, but because God revealed it to you, not because of yourself. And then Jesus begins to explain to them there the, the death that he would die. And what, is, what does Simon do? What does Peter do? He takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. No, 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 no. You're not coming to die. And it's the same thing that people are doing here. No, you didn't come for that. We're expecting you to do this. But Jesus pleads with these people here not to give up hope, not to surrender to the darkness. He says, a little while longer, you have the light. And again, people could misunderstand that. They're going, what do you mean we have the light? But Jesus explained this to him because he said, I am the light of the world. He has given them everything they need to understand. But unfortunately, at this time, they didn't believe. So he pleads with them, 
Stay with me a little longer. Remain in the light for as long as you have it. Don't give up. Walk with me. Believe in me. And you'll be saved out of this darkness. In verse 37, it says, But although he had done so many, I love that right there, so many, like not just a few, so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah again said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see him with their eyes and lest they should understand with their hearts and turn to him so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Even though Jesus pleads with them, even though he wants them to understand, even though he has been with them, teaching them, revealing them, all of these things, even though they have the Old Testament, and this point, they choose not to believe. They made up their minds not to believe on Jesus, and so the Lord hardens their heart and blinds their eyes. And that can be such a sad thing to hear and a sad thing to read, and, and you would almost wish that it would just end a different way, but it does, just not yet. In the same way that they couldn't see him, the Gentiles, before he had been lifted up, it was the same thing that was going to open the eyes of these people. Just as the disciples admitted, as John admits earlier, we didn't really get it. We didn't really understand it yet. But that he would be lifted up. He would be glorified. And in that moment, their eyes would be opened. But this happens to us today. People experience the truth of God's word. They begin to follow Jesus and then realize somewhere along the way, wait, the cross awaits me. I need to die to myself. I need to stop living for myself. They come seeking salvation, but then it's, well, I want to do it on my terms. By my definition. And sadly, they walk away or begin to create their own version of Christianity literally crafting in their own minds, in their own image, their own Messiah. And the unfortunate thing is, there is only one. He gave us his word so that as we study it, as we understand it, we know who he is. We see the fulfillment of prophecy throughout scripture. And it gives us courage to know that in the happenings of our day, we can cast aside our expectations and we can look to Jesus. What do I mean by that? In all the crazy things happening in our world today, not just over the last year, but open your eyes over the extent of your lifetime, our world is not getting better. Sure, technology is advancing at a great rate and there's a lot of advances in the medical field, but with that comes some new disease, some new virus, some new thing over and over and over again. And our world is crumbling. Even the church being torn apart right now by political things. We can lose heart. We can begin to look for a political savior as though the restoration of our country, of, of our churches is, is the end all be all. But if we take a moment and step back, if we do what the people of Jesus's day should have done, and we look at the prophetic word given to us through all things concerning Jesus's second coming, 
and all the things that need to happen. When you read the headlines, you know what you begin to see? Hope. I mean, not because that's what they're giving you. They're giving you disparity. They're giving you conflict. They're giving you, you know, all of these horrible things. And yet you can read those things and you can begin to go, this is a sign of our time. People call what is uh, evil good and what is good evil. People have turned away from the Lord. It's a sign of our times. We should be dying more and more to ourselves this day so that people could hear this good news. But as long as we choose to remain as we are, Without dying to ourselves, that grain will not fall to the earth and die and produce more fruit. So we have to lay aside our expectations. I'll invite the worship team to come on up. What will be said of your life? What will be said of the way that you believed on Jesus or didn't believe on Jesus? Will you continue to place your own expectations on God, expecting him to, to deliver you out of every little hardship or to be who you want him to be, to be flexible? No, that's not really sin, Lord. Don't call it that. Or will you choose, just as Jesus did, to go through the difficulty of the cross, to say, I surrender. All of my preconceived notions, I surrender my political views, I, I surrender my expectations to you, Lord Jesus. I trust you and I accept your forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus didn't come to give you a better life. He didn't come to make you amazingly wealthy, amazingly handsome, amazingly whatever, or to give you the power so that you could do miracles and draw people unto yourself. He came to save you from your sins. And maybe you've accepted that salvation, but your life, truthfully, if you evaluate it, hasn't really lined up with the words, follow me. Maybe they haven't really lined up with the idea and the thought we find in Galatians 2.20, for I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live in faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Surrender your heart to Jesus today. What he offers is so great, so great, so, so pure, so wonderful. It's better than anything you could have here on this earth. He will give you joy everlasting in the presence of the Lord. Wipe away every tear from your eyes. Freedom from the hardships of this world doesn't come now. Wait just a little while longer. Walk in the light while you have the light. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that where sin abounds, grace does all the more. We pray, Lord, that today we would surrender our hearts, our minds, our lives to you that we would recognize, Lord, that you are not someone that we can manipulate to our own will, but that you are so wonderful, so great, so powerful that you give us a better way. We thank you that there's surety in salvation. We thank you that you've reconciled us to you, that we can have right relationship with you. Lord, be glorified in our lives by the deaths that we die to ourselves and the way that we lift you high. 
We praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen.